0: If I'm if I'm going to thrill you, it's going to take the Word of God. Because uh, I've never felt like such a loser after uh, Mac and Adams and Pallison. Feel like uh, Eeyore at a motivational speakers convention. So sorry that I'm here now. But uh, it's an honor to be here at the 25th anniversary of BCI. Um, it's an honor to uh, be here and uh, honor the work of this institute and honor the work of Joe Propri. This is actually last night was the first time I've actually uh, met Joe. We've talked on the phone and corresponded, but I've never met him in person. But it's uh, until last night. But it's hard to find somebody. I want you to know in the in the biblical counseling movement that exists all across this country and all across the world now, uh, it's hard to find people that don't know and appreciate and respect uh, Joe Propri. So thank you for your ministry and. Uh, for all your work and your commitment to the sufficient scriptures it 's appropriate uh, on a twenty fifth anniversary celebration that we would be talking about the sufficiency of scripture i think um, I think I could win a debate that the sufficiency of scripture is the most important doctrine in the biblical counseling movement There are, there are other really important doctrines in the biblical counseling Movement, uh, sanctification and Christology, all sorts of things that are important. But it seems to me uh, that the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is the bedrock for the movement uh, because it is what has made the biblical counseling movement distinct. Uh, There's all sorts of counselors who love Jesus and who uh, have good things to say about a biblical doctrine of sanctification, but they don't necessarily point to the Scripture's, as the guiding rule of thumb, the guiding standard for biblical counseling. And so it's it is the sufficiency of scripture, I think, uh that defines the biblical counseling movement. If the biblical counseling movement goes away, or rather if the if the sufficiency of scripture and our convictions about it go away, then the biblical counseling movement goes away. Uh and so it's really important that we are uh, talking about this uh, because many people assume that the Bible is not sufficient for the kinds of conversations that happen in counseling. In fact, I would say that most people in our world, even most Christians, believe that the Bible is not sufficient for what's happening in counseling. That is... Uh, a problem anyway, but it's becoming an increasing problem today because I'm telling you there are people in the biblical counseling movement that are starting to wonder if the scriptures are sufficient for counseling. I'm just, you ought have to take my word on this. Uh, maybe you won't have to, maybe you know some of the people I'm talking about, but I've been um, in meetings in the last couple of years and there are starting to be people in our movement that are going, you know, maybe the sufficiency thing, maybe we need to drop it. I mean, this seems like a relic from the 70s and the 80s, and I think we need to move on and just leave it off. And I'm having occasion to say all over the place, listen, guys, if you do that, you are consigning the movement to death. And... uh Uh, And we're going to have to pack up and go home because we don't need anybody else to say that. We we don't need anybody else to say, well, the Bible's not sufficient for counseling. What we need is people who are pointing to the Scriptures as the sufficient rule of thumb for counseling. And so I I think that these are um, very interesting days in the biblical counseling movement. I think uh, right now the biblical counseling movement is trying to decide who they're going to listen to. Uh, We've gone through several generations of leadership. Uh, in the biblical counseling movement. And this is sort of an interesting, tumultuous time, where there's all sorts of biblical counseling ministries springing up. It's cool uh, to use the term biblical counseling. Uh, Integrationists at the AACC are naming their books biblical counseling books and that kind of thing. And so just biblical counseling is cool, because nobody wants to say, well, I'm not biblical. Uh, But so then the debate is, well, what does it mean to be biblical? And our movement is trying to figure out who they're going to listen to on this. And I think the next 10 or 15 years are going to determine whether uh, we have a movement that is stronger, more Christ centered, more biblically based than the one we received, or whether we find ourselves back in the situation that Dr. Adams found himself in in the 1960s with basically a church that had absolutely no idea what the Bible had to do with counseling and that it was useful or anything like that. So I think the next 10 or 15 years are crucial for us. And and I'm thankful for conferences like this that take the matter head on. There's, it's, it's not just theory and movement, though, that makes sufficiency important. It's also a very practical reason. Sufficiency, the sufficiency of Scripture is important for this practical reason. When somebody comes into your living room or your office or pulls you aside in the hallway of church and says, I want to kill myself or I'm addicted to pornography, or I'm committing adultery against my husband, or my husband is hitting me, when somebody pulls you aside and tells you something like that, I mean, the most urgent question is, what are you going to say? You have to say something. They're blinking at you. They're waiting for you to respond. You have to say something. What will it be? How can you know that what you have to say will be helpful, will be relevant, will be life-giving, will be profound in all the right ways? Well, I want to suggest to you that you can't know that anything you would say would meet that high standard unless you are speaking from an authority. The sufficiency of Scripture is important for the very practical reason that it's the Bible that tells us what to say in those and in thousands of other situations. And if you take away the sufficiency of Scripture, if you take away the Bible, you're taking away our ability to know what to say to hurting people. Rejecting the sufficiency of Scripture is the absolute least practical thing you can do in ministry. If you want to be completely worthless and useless in ministry, just keep saying all that garbage about how the Bible's not about what counseling's about, and you will be worthless. And he will not help people. So this is really important for all sorts of reasons, and I want to try uh, to help us evaluate this issue of the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture for counseling in a couple of different ways. My take on it is that in the for Christians who are into counseling, there are three different approaches uh, about sufficiency. The first and most common approach to uh, the Bible and counseling is that the Bible is irrelevant for counseling. That's the most common approach. I hate to say that. It breaks my heart to say that. But most Christians think the Bible has absolutely nothing to do with counseling. If you've got a little problem, you know, if you've got a little bit of worry, uh, you're indecisive about what job to accept, Um, your husband's been a little cold towards you lately, you need a little bit of biblical inspiration. The Bible's good for those kinds of things. But for the hard issues, for the real issues that cripple people in their life and make them think they can't go on, the Bible's just irrelevant for that. Psychology is for that. Most of the people in our churches are looking at the preacher thinking, if I had a question about the Trinity or if I needed to revive my prayer life, I'd go talk to that guy. But if I've got a serious issue, if, if I'm contemplating suicide, if I'm thinking of leaving my husband, if I'm addicted to heroin, I'm not talking to that guy. Because what he's dealing in, namely the scriptures, is not what I need to solve my problem. We live in a psychologized culture that has imbibed by osmosis that what you need when you have problems is a person who's been professionally trained, and by professional, they always mean secular a person who's been secularly trained to deal with stuff like that, and that's not a pastor, and it's not a biblical counselor. Bless their hearts. They love Jesus. They love the Bible, but they don't have the big guns to deal with problems. The Bible's irrelevant for that. Second approach is that the Bible is necessary but not sufficient. So these are integrationists and Christian psychologists. When When you get Christians that are starting to think really hard about counseling and they want to spend their lives... Uh, Focused on counseling, this is the dominant approach. This is uh, Christian higher education, most of the seminaries, most of the Christian and Bible colleges, uh, is the integration Christian psychology approach. The Bible's necessary. I mean, these guys are conservative theologians. They love the Bible. They love Jesus Christ. They love hurting and troubled people, and they want to help, and they want to say, You need the Bible. Don't don't withhold the Bible from hurting and troubled people. But the Bible's not enough. The Bible's missing important and crucial elements. Uh, it's missing the details of how to help. It's missing uh, specifics about how to instruct people who are dealing with really hard problems. And so there's where we need secular psychology to come in and sort of rescue the Bible from all the stuff that it doesn't talk about. And goodness gracious, they they really mean well. I, I I don't I don't know, and I'm I know a lot of integrationists and Christian psychologists, and I don't know any of them that are sitting in a room alone together smoking cigars and cackling under a naked light bulb uh, about how they're so glad they're robbing the church of the Bible. That's that's not what they're doing. They, They are just, they misunderstand the nature of people's problems, and they misunderstand the contents of the Scripture. And here's what happens. I mean, this is, and I don't have time to get into this, but all the evidence bears out that because they believe that, Because they believe that the Bible's got good stuff in it, but it's not about what counseling's about, and psychology is what really bails us out when people are in trouble, all the evidence bears out that when you sit down with them for counseling, what you get is not the Bible, but psychology. And that just makes all the sense in the world. Because if you believe the Bible's relatively limited in its resources, and secular psychology is very robust in its resources, well, then, of course, you'd you'd pick the most helpful thing. Third approach is that the Bible is necessary for counseling and sufficient for counseling. And this is the biblical view. And this is the view of the biblical counseling movement uh, since the 1960s. The Bible is necessary for counseling and it is sufficient. You need the Bible for counseling. And when you have the Bible for counseling, you have what you need to help people with their problems in living, regardless of what their problem in living is. The biblical position on... The use of the Bible for counseling is that the Bible is necessary and sufficient. But there aren't very many of us who believe this. There's more now than there were in the 1960s, and that number is going up, and I'm thankful for that, and that's for all kinds of reasons, not least of which is all sorts of uh, uh, people like Joe Propri and institutes like BCI. But we're still in the minority. Um, I was just defending last week, uh, actually with some reporters on the West Coast, as we get ready for our annual conference at Grace Community Church out there in the fall. Uh, Some uh, uh, reporters on the West Coast that are aware that we've got a conference coming called the Gospel and Mental Illness, and we believe the Bible is sufficient, and there's another large church on the West Coast, and they just had a... A conference on uh, the Bible and mental health, and they don't believe what we believe about the Bible, and so they're kind of poking fun at us a little bit. That do these Christians really believe that Jesus and the Bible can help people with their problems? And these are a lot of these people are Christians, so we're in the we're in the minority on that, and that's okay. We're not um, uh, truth is not necessarily that which is popular; it's that which is prescribed in the Word of God. L- let me try to defend. This belief, this conviction that the Bible is necessary for counseling and sufficient for counseling by helping us understand some nuances about the doctrine of sufficiency. We talk about sufficiency and, and really when theologians discuss sufficiency, it's a little bit more, um, Precise than how we sometimes talk about it. So to help us be as precise in our thinking as possible, I would like to suggest to you uh, that there are actually four different kinds of sufficiency that we can talk about as being taught in the scriptures. The first kind of sufficiency is what I'll call progressive sufficiency. And the doctrine of progressive sufficiency teaches that the sum total of the revelation that God's covenant people have at any point of redemptive history is sufficient for them at that particular point. What the people of God have at any point in redemptive history by way of Bible is what they need at that particular point. So um, Adam and Eve needed the word of God that said, you shall eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it lest you die. The word that was sufficient for them was that word. They didn't need what we have in Revelation 19 uh what god uh, created as sufficient for them was that word believers at the time of the exodus they needed the pentateuch they they didn't need song of solomon they didn't need first chronicles what the word that was sufficient for them at that particular point was the pentateuch fast forward about 1500 years and what we uh, about 3,500 years, and what we need today is the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Those are the sufficient scriptures. Um, God has been kind to his people all throughout redemptive history to give them what they need at that particular point, and what they had at that particular point was sufficient for them. That's the doctrine of progressive sufficiency. Second understanding of sufficiency is the doctrine of completed sufficiency. Completed sufficiency says that the completion of redemption leads to the closing of the Christian canon and the completion of redemption. So this is something like Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 teaches us, that in the former days God spoke to the prophets and the apostles. He's spoken to us now by his Christ, and we're not expecting any new revelation. So one facet of the sufficiency of Scripture is an understanding that the canon is closed, that we are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, not more books. We are awaiting the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ, not more revelatory words. That's the doctrine of completed sufficiency. The third understanding of sufficiency is the doctrine of formal sufficiency. And formal sufficiency teaches that Scripture contains everything needed for a correct understanding of Scripture. This is the Reformation principle that was called the Analogia Scriptura, or the analogy of Scripture, sometimes called the Analogia Fide, or the analogy of faith. And this was what was up for grabs in the Protestant Reformation. This is one of the most significant debates that the Reformers had with the Catholics at the time, that Scripture is its own interpreter. We don't need an authoritative teaching office called the Magisterium to tell us what the Bible means. The Bible interprets the Bible, not... Something else. And so formal sufficiency teaches that the Bible is sufficient to interpret the Bible. Commentaries are helpful. God raises up teachers in the church and we, we appreciate that. But they are not the authoritative interpreter of the Bible. The Bible is. A final understanding of sufficiency is, is what I'll call material sufficiency. Material sufficiency. And material sufficiency refers to all of the individual items of instruction which Scripture comprehensively addresses. All of the individual items of instruction which Scripture comprehensively addresses. Material sufficiency, namely the extent, the material extent of sufficiency, is where the eye of the tornado is in the biblical counseling movement. Uh, I hope we believe in the doctrine of progressive sufficiency. I hope we believe in completed sufficiency. I hope we believe in formal sufficiency. But if you want to understand what has gotten everybody all worked up uh, about the Bible and counseling, you need to understand the material extent of sufficiency. Uh, That is, for what items is the Bible sufficient? What areas of life and teaching is the Bible sufficient? Uh, the Bible is not sufficient for everything. Do you know that? It is not sufficient for everything. It couldn't possibly be. If the Bible were sufficient for everything, it would not fit in here. Um, Integrationists love to poke at us and say, well, who who, who would go to a biblical counselor and think that the Bible is sufficient for everything? We don't go to the Bible and, and expect it to teach us how to redo the plumbing in our house. This is the, I mean, that's, that's in about eight or ten different uh, uh, integration textbooks. I feel like they had a meeting one day, and they said, let's use this plumbing example because you just keep reading it over and over and over again. And I have never talked with a biblical counselor that thinks the Bible is sufficient for plumbing. In fact, you would be concerned, and I would be too, if you called a plumber and he came over and he had a hammer and a Bible. I mean, I'm glad the plumber is reading the Bible, but I'm somewhat familiar with the text of Scripture, and I know for a fact that there's nothing in here that's going to tell him about that doohickey under my sink, all right? I don't even know what that thing is. Um, so you, you would be deeply concerned if uh, you went to a cardiologist for heart bypass surgery, and just as the ether was taking effect, uh, the surgeon held up, the Bible to 2 Corinthians and said, Don't worry, I'm going to do everything it says. I mean, again, we're glad that he's trying to live and study the Word of God, but that's useless on the operating table. Um, it's not a sufficient guide for heart surgery. So, so the doctrine of the material sufficiency of Scripture does not extend to everything. The Bible is not a sufficient guide for everything that we want to know. Um, so how do we decide what issues come underneath the material extent of sufficiency and which, which issues don't? Um, there's all kinds of debates about this. Um, I was just talking this morning uh, with some folks. Some people believe that the Bible is not sufficient to tell us about the creation of the universe. How long it took and how it happened and that kind of thing. That's an issue of the material extent of the sufficiency of Scripture. Does the sufficiency, does the material sufficiency of Scripture extend to how, how, and whether we can know about how we got here? Relevant for our purposes today is um, uh, is counseling. Some people say, "Well, the Bible's not about counseling. It's not about plumbing. It's not about counseling." Um, and people who say those things, whether it's about creation or counseling or anything else, they always make the material extent of sufficiency very small. They say something like this, and they mean well. The Bible is about how to get saved. The Bible's about salvation. And so everybody agrees that salvation extends, uh, is underneath the material extent of sufficiency. The material doctrine of sufficiency extends to salvation. We agree with that. But does it extend to anything else? I would argue that the material sufficiency of Scripture extends to anything that the Bible says it extends to. And so if we want to find out whether an issue is underneath the material extent of sufficiency, we have to ask two questions. The first question that we have to ask is, what is the nature of the thing that we're talking about? What is it? And the second question we have to ask is, does the Bible claim to address that issue specifically? So once we have understood the nature of the thing, does the Bible claim to address it sufficiently? And when we answer both of those questions, we'll know whether a given issue is under the material extent of sufficiency. So let's talk about counseling here for a few minutes. What is counseling? Most people think the Bible is not about counseling because they don't understand what counseling is. What is counseling? Counseling concerns hardships that people are experiencing in their lives. That's what it is. Problems in living, difficulties in our circumstances. The problems are, by definition, not medical. They're not medical. Secular people know this. Religious people know this. Biblical counselors know this. You don't go to counseling for a medical problem. Sometimes medical problems can come on the table in counseling. But everybody agrees that you go to a medical doctor for a counseling problem. One of the most frustrating things... to me, as I talk about these issues, is people accuse the biblical counseling movement all over the place of being against science, of being against medicine, because you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to help people with their counseling-related problems. And I'm going, where, where is the biblical counselor that has ever said, do not go to a physician if you're sick? Where is that person? And it's, it's a disingenuous claim, because integration is to make it they are having counseling conversations with people who have medical problems, and they're not saying, well, we don't, um, we're don't, we not against medicine because we don't use physicians for everything. Physicians are good and wonderful, but people's problems are more than being merely medical. People's problems are also spiritual, as you know. And so the problems that are on the table in counseling are, by definition, not medical in nature. They're problems which require a conversation. There are problems which require an exchange of wisdom and worldview. It's what Freud called the talking cure. Counseling, all counseling, whether you're secular or Christian, biblical integration, all counseling is a conversation where one person tries to help another person by persuading them to change their worldview by persuading them that if, they would, if you would just adopt my understanding of your problem, then your problem would either go away or get better or at least make sense. That's what counseling is. It's, it's a counselor with a worldview trying to persuade a person with problems that the counselor's worldview will help them. That's what counseling is. The only question is whether the worldview of the counselor is one that Jesus thinks is true. If Jesus thinks it's true, you're a good counselor. If Jesus thinks your worldview is bogus, you're a bad counselor. But everybody is doing that, no matter what. In counseling, we are talking about life issues that require wisdom, not science that needs a medical solution. The church hasn't... I won't say the church. I'll say often people don't understand this. And they don't understand it because Christians dropped the ball about 100 years ago and they quit thinking biblically about these things. Uh, They don't understand it because a new movement that's only about 115 years old called secular psychology began to uh, stand up and try to stake out turf and say, hey, people's problems are in our purview. That was Sigmund Freud's mission. It's not even controversial. He was very clear in uh, the question of lay analysis that um, he was upset That at that point in history, if somebody had problems, they had to go to their pastor or their priest or their rabbi. And if you know anything about Freud, you know he was not the hugest fan of God. Um, And so Freud said, what we need is to create a, and this is is his language, Freud's language in the question of lay analysis. He said, what we need is to create a category of secular pastoral workers. Isn't that funny? The word counselor wasn't ready to go at that point. When Freud looked at it, he said, we need people who do what pastors do, but who don't force you to choke down Jesus in the Bible. We need secular pastoral workers. The word he had for helping people with their problems was pastor. And now people think we're a bunch of idiots if we say you should go to your pastor when you have problems. You have to give the guy some credit. He was remarkably successful. I mean, remarkably successful. The, the historical situation is completely different. So there's, there's historical situations where we don't understand this about counseling. It's also the case that we don't understand this about counseling because of what gets called biological psychiatry. There is um, the predominant view at the lay level in our culture today is that people have problems because of chemical imbalance. This is called the biogenic theory of mood disorders. Um, And all of the researchers, all of the people at the high end of psychiatry know it's just a theory, and many of them believe it's a bogus theory. The latest research from Harvard indicates this. The latest research from UCLA indicates this. But at the lay level, if you bring this up, people go, wait, you don't think people have a chemical imbalance? You hate science. And I'm going, well, I hate science as much as the people at UCLA and Harvard do. And, in fact, I had a conversation. I was talking about this with somebody yesterday. I had a conversation with a neuroscientist at UCLA who's not a Christian, doesn't care about the Bible, but he's interested in the biblical counseling movement. We were having lunch one day, and he was just asking me to talk about this. And I just mentioned that people think that we're against science. And he said, well, why do people think you're against science? And I said, well, because um, we're a little concerned about the overprescription of psychoactive medication. And he said, uh, people think you're against science? because you don't like psychoactive medication? And I said, yeah. And the secular PhD in neuroscience at UCLA said, we've known for 15 years at UCLA that there's nothing to psychoactive medication. And I said, you are certified as an ACBC counselor, (laughs) and you have to come with me on the road and tell people this. Um, But at at the lay level... This is what people believe, that people's problems are chemical merely and not spiritual. Notice I'm not saying people never have a medical problem. They certainly do. But they're not merely medical. And then also the use of technical jargon to describe people's problems. If I tell you your daughter has obstinate defiant disorder, you have no idea what that means. It sounds like something you don't know anything about. It sounds like something you need a degree to understand. It sounds like something that you do need medication for. But if I use the Bible's language for those same problems, and I say, your daughter is rebellious. She's disobedient to her parents. She, is, uh, she goes into fits of rage. Well, that's language that you understand. That's language that the Bible uses to talk about. But secularists protect their turf by assigning technical jargon to problems that the Bible understands, and then arguing that since the Bible doesn't use that technical word, the Bible doesn't talk about the problem, and it's a category mistake. The problems that people deal with in counseling are issues of life. They're issues that concern problems and living. That's what the nature of counseling is. And so then we have to ask, well, is the Bible about that? If we've remember, we, just, we determine whether something is underneath the material extent of the sufficiency of Scripture by determining what the nature of it is. So we're not going to get lost in technical jargon. We're not going to get lost in a secular attempt to reinvent what counseling is. We're just going to say counseling is about the problems that people experience in their life. That's the answer to question number one. Then question number two. Is the Bible about the problems that people experience in their life? And if you say, and I'm fighting back tears because I'm a baby and because I'm thinking about people that I just talked with this week. If you say no to me, that the Bible is not about those problems, then we have no hope. We have no hope if the Bible is not about those problems. You have nothing to say to the couple I talked with this week who are on the brink of divorce. It's going to happen if Jesus Christ does not intervene. And if God has not given us a word, an authoritative and sufficient word to speak to that couple, I'm out. I have no idea what to say. And so I just want to very quickly make three statements that I mean to be an endorsement of the fact that the Bible is about these problems. First of all, And and we don't have time to go over this, what I have in my notes, but I have about two dozen Bible references here where the Holy Spirit, when he inspired the Scripture, he links the sufficiency of Scripture with the authority of Scripture. Evangelicals love the authority of the Bible. What I have found is that the Holy Spirit loves to inspire Bible passages that teach about the authority of Scripture, and inextricably linked to that authority is the sufficiency of Scripture, Uh, for the Holy Spirit, the authoritative word is the sufficient word. And we we don't have time to, um, to read this. There's one passage I want to pay careful attention to here in just a minute. But I just direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 is a passage, particularly at the end of the chapter, that gets a reputation for being about authority. But The Apostle Peter's teaching about authority at the end of the chapter is founded on his teaching about sufficiency at the beginning of the chapter, in verses 3 to 5. For the Apostle Peter, he wrote a chapter inspired by the Spirit that inextricably links the authority of the Bible with the sufficiency of the Bible. And so we are saying to everybody, we're saying to our integrationist brothers and sisters, if you believe in authoritative Bible, You cannot get rid of a sufficient Bible without a scalpel. You have to cut out the Bible. And there's other places. There's Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and about two dozen places in Psalm 119 and 2 Timothy 3 and other places. The Bible teaches that a sufficient word is also an authoritative word. A second argument I would make that the Bible is about these problems is... All the passages in the New Testament which describe Christ's work and its implications for life. Just one passage in Titus chapter 1. Excuse me, Titus chapter 2 and 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And it goes on and, and even gets even more exciting by the time you get to uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 5. But the point is, what did Jesus come to do? What was the function of Jesus appearing? He's appeared to bring salvation, to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live lives that are good, In summary. Listen, brothers and sisters, the Bible is sufficient for counseling because Jesus Christ is sufficient to change our life. Do we believe for one second that our God who loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us to change us? Do we believe for a second that He didn't tell us how that takes place? Would He do such a thing? His his Word tells us He did not. Here's the third thing I'll say very quickly. The people that you know and the people that I know that we have counseled with extreme problems that the Bible is not supposed to be about, those stories that we can tell are proof that the charge that the Bible is not about what counseling is not about, those stories are proof that that's a false charge. I think about all the people I know and that have sat in my living room and have sat in my office and they've been diagnosed with the most extreme diagnoses that you can get. And I know the people that Jesus has changed. I know the people that we've opened up the Word of God and we've explained their problems in biblical categories and we've charted a solution forward in biblical terminology. How are you going to say that didn't help? This, this book that uh, Stuart Scott and I edited called Counseling the Hard Problems is meant to prove this. It's meant to say, hey, look, we've got ten biblical counselors from all across the country, and they have counseled everybody from postpartum depression to panic attacks to multiple personalities. And the the stories in that book tell the accounts of these real people who were changed by the Word of God. What are you going to say? When you use the Bible and you show, the Bible understands this problem. What do you say? I'll give one example here. I knew a girl... Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 55, and we'll be done. I knew a girl named Sarah, one of my favorite counselees of all time. She uh, came to me when uh, she was 18. She came with her mother. She uh, was a cutter. She used an X-Acto knife uh, on her legs. Um, She had an awful father. Who would yell and scream at her regularly. She loved her dad and respected him and wanted his approval. And every time he would yell at her and berate her in front of friends of hers at school, in front of her siblings, it was more than she could bear. And she would go to her bedroom and she would get an exacto knife and she would lower her pants or pull up her dress and she would cut a notch in her thigh. Why would someone do that? Well, when you pay attention to Sarah long enough and you listen, the reason Sarah did it is she couldn't stand the sight of blood. If she saw blood, it made her pass out. And she wanted a break from thinking about what her dad did to her. And so she cut herself, looked at the blood, passed out. And when she got up, she had to worry about cleaning up the blood and covering up the mess. And so it was a way to escape from the problems that she had. Well, cutting is one of those problems where the Bible's not about that. Where's the verse in the Bible about cutting? Well, one of the verses is Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I'd fly away and be at rest. Yes, I'd wander far away. I'd lodge in the wilderness. I'd hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. It goes on in verse 20. It says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. If Sarah were here right now, she would say Psalm 55 changed her life. We spent five months, five months in Psalm 55, and it's just one chapter in the whole Bible and we spent five months there. Psalm 55 is about my friend Sarah. It's about this woman who's overwhelmed with terror. It's about this woman who wants to... She wants wings to fly out of here. She wants to escape. That's what the exacto knife did. It got her out. It, it teaches her to call upon the Lord who will sustain her like no vision of blood can do. Um. Uh, it calls upon her to trust in the Lord's judgment of her father, not on anything she can do. I know Sarah, and Sarah would say Psalm 55 is what the Lord Jesus Christ used to change her. We, we take that testimony away if we say the Bible's not good enough. If we say the Bible's not about what counseling's about, we say Sarah's testimony doesn't matter. But the Bible is about it. We just need to learn to speak the way God speaks. Let me pray, and we'll be done. Father, teach us about the sufficiency of Scripture for counseling. Teach us about the urgent need to help hurting and troubled people with the truths of your word. Father, would you build up your church uh, even today at this conference. And Father, would you do it for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.